Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8, and that is where we will be this morning for our communion meditation. Over, <clears throat> I invite you, just a reminder, to come back this evening, 5 o'clock, for our candlelight service. We're going to be like the old, Presby- old school Presbyterians and have our morning and evening worship on Sunday. So, uh, <clears throat> and, then, and those old school Presbyterians will say, well, look, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. You guys need to get on board. Well, we are today. Um, so this will be a shorter uh, just communion meditation to prepare us to come to the table. We're here this morning to worship the Lord, um, and he has given us word and sacrament to be, to be blessed by, to be encouraged, and, and to have our faith nourished uh, this morning. Psalm 8, we'll be looking at the whole psalm together. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's word. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, would you create in us humble hearts as we come before your word, not to stand over the word, but for the word to be over us, to convict us, to draw us near, to know that you're the God who created all things and who cares deeply for us. That you would come to us, Jesus, to save us. So Jesus, would you be magnified, would you be glorified as we ponder these amazing, astounding truths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever been out late at night stargazing? Maybe it was a meteor shower that you heard on the news was going to happen, so you went out and, and tried to see it for yourself. Or maybe you were in a remote location. Maybe you were camping out in the middle of nowhere. It's a clear night, and it was perfect for staring up at the heavens. You know, back before, back before we had kids... Hannah and I used to go on fun, adventurous trips together. We don't do that anymore. It's been years. Too long. But we went to Hawaii together. She won a free trip, uh, free flights out there. She worked for Hilton Hotels at the time. And we went to the big island of Hawaii, and we drove up to Mauna Kea, where they have one of the most important observatories in the world, and it's this great place where you can view the stars. 
And um, I've also read that it's one of the thinnest, uh, driest parts of our atmosphere, so it's really it's a great place to, to, for them to have the observatory. And we drove up there 13,000 feet from, from sea level. Yes, we had headaches from the elevation gain, so we didn't stay up there very long. But what we saw was amazing. I mean, the amount of stars, the, and the amount of shooting stars you see. And then you see this belt of stars down the middle, which is the galaxy that we're in. It was, it was just mind-blowing to see that. It's mind-blowing. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're just in awe of the universe that we're in. And you know, for thousands of years, mankind has been in awe of the world and the universe that we inhabit. And who of us hasn't at one time or another asked, who am I in the midst of this grand universe? Who am I? In the midst of this mind-bogglingly large cosmos, who am I? And how do I fit into this grand universe? And it makes the fact that God, the creator of all that we see, has made contact with his creatures that much more astounding. I read this fact this week. Did you know that, and this is just to kind of get our minds wrapped around how large the universe is, did you know that there are estimated to be more stars and planets in the observable universe than there are grains of sand on earth? Can you you wrap your brain around that? And we, your, your life, you as a person, are just a speck in all those grains of sand. And so here is David, the psalmist, just as astounded as we are as he's writing this psalm. And yet, he has way less scientific knowledge than we do. And he's still astounded. See, David in this psalm is stargazing, just like us. And the essence of the psalm is is really this, that the more we understand the God who creates and the God who cares, the more we will understand ourselves. The more you understand Him, the more you understand yourself. And therefore, we'll understand the meaning of life. What is it all about? To behold true glory. That is what it's all about. And what is that really? What is beholding true glory? That's worship. All of life is meant to worship, to be in awe of the Creator, our, our God. And so what I want you to take home today, what I really want you to know before we leave today, is that beholding God's identity reveals your identity. And beholding His glory reveals your glory. And so we're going to ask two questions this morning. We're going to ask, who is God and who are we? And when we ask that question, who is God, we're going to learn that he's the God who creates and he's the God who cares. And when we ask the question, who are we, we're going to see that we are his crowning achievement and his rescued children. His crowning achievement and his rescued children. First, let's look at the question, who is God? Look at verse 1 with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. You see, you see what David's doing here. Look at the first verse and look at the last verse. He's bookending this psalm with the same exact words. It's like a refrain. It's like a chorus that comes back. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And notice in that first line, you have Lord twice, but you have Lord spelled sort of differently. You have Lord in all caps, and then you have Lord in lowercase. Why the difference? Well, it's important to know this, that he's using the covenant name Yahweh when, he has, when it's in all caps, and then he's, he's using the Lord, the word for really his, him being sovereign, our ruler. So if we go to the first word, what's so important about Yahweh? What's so, what's so important about all caps there for Lord? It's the name that God uses when he, when he speaks to Moses. Moses asks, well, when I go to Pharaoh, who, who should I say sent me? And that's when he delivers this name. Tell him, I am has sent you, me. I am who I am. And that is the name, Yahweh, that, that covenant name, that we see all throughout the Old Testament as God reveals his loving, steadfast care to his people. That he's the covenant God. As we read through 1 Samuel this whole past year, that is the name that continually comes up, Yahweh, the Lord. It's the name he reveals to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and kept promises to them all the generations. But he's also our Lord. Look, O Lord, our Lord the lowercase Lord. He is our sovereign. He is our ruler. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. And so when we say that he's our Lord, he's, what we mean there is that he is to be obeyed. He is to be submitted to. We're to follow his rule as his subjects because he's a good Lord. And so it means he requires our obedience and submission. It also means when we fail to obey him, that he requires our sorrow over our sin and and return to him, which the Bible calls repentance. And notice that he's the Lord of all people. How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a global, universal Lord that all are to bow the knee to. We were just reading in the Advent series with our kids last night, the three wise men story. And the three wise men who come from the east And it's a picture, it's a reminder of the nations coming to Jesus to bow down. This isn't just the Jewish God. This is the God of the Gentiles. It's the God of the universe. And you know, as we enter another election year, as we think about who do we want leading our country, we should want leaders and rulers and presidents and congressmen and congresswomen who submit to the lordship of the King of Kings who put themselves under that Lord. So we, we should pray for them. If we don't see that in them now, we should pray for them, that they would have that, they, they would submit, just as we do our best to do as well. Whoever they are, whether you think their policies are good or bad, pray that they would submit to the King of Kings. Well, we also see he's the God who creates. He's the God who creates. Look at verse 1 and 3. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And we'll skip two for now. We'll go to three. When I look at the heavens, at your heavens, the work 
of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. You see, it's clearly being taught here that everything we see is created by God. It's what God reminded Job of at the end of the book of Job, as Job is sort of challenging God and and questioning him. God returns and he says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. God did all that. We are mere creatures. Who are we to answer to God? You see, it's that important doctrine of the creator-creature distinction that is unique to Christianity. That God is outside of the creation. We are separate. He is not dependent upon us for anything. He created Everything. It's what Paul reminds us of in Romans 1 for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. I saw a video this, this past week of an, an atheist who, who, who told the interviewer he's an atheist because he follows the evidence. And the evidence doesn't point to a God. Well, I would push back and say, what evidence are you looking at? I think you're missing a ton of evidence here. You're not, you're not drawing the same conclusions here. What Paul says in Romans 1 is that in our heart of hearts, whether you acknowledge it or not, we all know the fact that we live in a world created by God. The evidence, if you were to follow it, is that we are the only known human beings, inhabitants, life forms in the known observable universe. And did that happen by accident? That's really what you have to argue if you're going to reject the idea of God, that it's all accidental. But it's not. It's clear. He's the creator of it all. We're here because his fingers worked it into existence. Look at that, look at that phrase. When I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers. Here we're getting... We're getting some metaphorical language, aren't we? Some poetic metaphorical language. God doesn't, he doesn't have these fingers and he's not working with his fingers. It's a metaphor. And it's describing the ease at which God went about creating the cosmos. Right? He didn't have to put his shoulder into it. He didn't have to really grunt and work hard to create. No. He flung stars into existence. He did it with ease. The work of his fingers. And then we come to this strange statement. Look at verse 2. Strange statement. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Why is he bringing babies into this? What does this, that have to do with anything? Well, I think the one point we can draw from that is he created stars and galaxies, these enormous, massive realities, but even down to the minutiae, of a baby and an infant. He's also created. But it's also the idea that God works through weakness. He works through smallness as well as 
big things. And it's that command that was given to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and fulfill the cultural mandate. That cultural mandate was to to prosper, to, to fulfill, fill the world with humans. That in and of itself was an act of strength, to fill the world with the image of God. And then as we read the redemptive story that, that the, the evil forces that have been opposed to God and His work, we see that the birth of children were often the way that God would bring healing, that He would bring a Savior. I was immediately reminded of Exodus 1 when the Egyptians have enslaved Israel. And it says early on, the, the more Israel was oppressed, the more they, what? Multiplied the more they spread abroad. And how did that affect the Egyptians? They were in dread of the people of Israel out of the mouth of babies and infants. One commentator says, the continuity of the human race is God's way of assuring the ultimate glorification of an earth populated with a new humanity. The sound of opposition is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. That's why, actually, I love to hear crying babies in the church service. It reminds me of that, that that is strength. That is how God moves and creates the next generation that will silence the enemy. You know, children praise God, too, and they have a place here in worship. You know, Jesus was challenged at this very thing when when he had entered Jerusalem and he'd come into the crying of Hosanna, the son of David, after he'd healed people, it says in Matthew 21, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of, God, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you prepared praise. That is how God's mission continues. It's through the shouting, the crying, the babbling of babies. So we see that he uses that. He uses all of creation to point to his glory. And then he turns to verse 4 to man. That ancient question, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And here we see that God is not only the creator, he is the one who cares. What is man that you're mindful of him? Has that that ever crossed your mind? The, The caring and the loving nature of God. There's two statements that Jesus has has made in the Gospels that have always encouraged me, astounded me, when he's reminding his disciples to not to not fear those who kill the body, but instead fear God who destroys both body and soul in hell. But that he's going to take care of us. He says, But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So it's not just he cares about you, he cares about every part of you. And then in another place, in Luke 12, Jesus reminds them not to be anxious, reminds us not to be anxious. And and how does he encourage us not to be anxious? He says, look at the ravens. 
Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap. They're not farmers. They don't have storehouses. They don't have barns, but yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? He's a God who cares. He's a God who loves and watches over us. How many of us, though, this lately, maybe you've been struggling with, how many of us have no problem believing in the Creator God, the creating God? But when we're asked if we believe in God as the caring God, we hesitate. We get a lump in our throat. And sometimes we're not completely sure that He cares if He's near or if He's involved. And why do we do that? Why do we struggle? I think it's because we often think when, you know, when sorrow and sadness and pain and problems confront us, which they do, we say God doesn't care. How could He care? We say to ourselves, if He truly loved me, I wouldn't be experiencing this. And it's in those moments when we're most susceptible to the ancient lie that the serpent spoke to the ears of Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. You can't be trusted. Open your eyes. He's holding out on you. Who does he think he is? He doesn't care for you. Have you heard those lies before? I have. Friends, I want to point you to the manger and the cross. When you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you hear those lies, that he doesn't care, I want you to think about the manger and the cross. Chad Bird says, If you've ever wondered how far the Lord would go to make sure you were his own, look down into the manger and look up into the cross. There's your answer. There's your answer. You know, we can say that we don't know why we go through the things we do, because we may not always get those exact answers in life. But what we can never say is that he doesn't care. He does. And he gave us a rescue. He gave us a way out of this because he came down to us to save us, to to get us out of our sin, to save us from our sin, to promise us for a new heaven and a new earth that this world we're in is temporary. So that's who God is. Who are we? That's the second question this morning. Who are we? Who are we? Look at verse 5. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now here, remember, he's talking about mankind. He's talking about mankind. Don't jump immediately to Hebrews chapter 2, which I have always done in my mind where it applies it to Christ. Let's not go there quite yet. He's talking about humans first. First of all, that you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. That we are God's crowning achievement. You are God's crowning achievement. We're crowned. We're we're crowned like kings and queens over the creation. We bear the king's image. That means every person you come across has dignity, has the king's image imprinted upon them. 
And yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're, we're struggling. And so I like, we like to call, I like to call ourselves a glorious ruin, right? We're, we're ruined in many ways, but we're still, there's that mark of glory on each and every one of us. So we're crowned, and we, we rule over the dominion. Look at, look, at, look at verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That's, that's Genesis 1 language, Genesis 1 and 2. We are over. We have dominion over the creation. You've put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heavens. We are glorious, and we continue to govern the earth. But at the same time, we're God's rescued children. We're his crowning achievement, but we're his rescued children. This, this psalm doesn't lean too heavily into our, our sin nature and how we, are, how we struggle. This is more the picture of the ideal human, right? how we were made originally. But we do get a... We do get a a hint of it in verse 2, that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength. We are often like babies and infants in our weakness. We're weak, we're broken, we're in need of saving, we're dependent. And we all start out this way, right? In the mirror, when you're getting dressed in the morning, you see your belly button. Your belly button is a reminder that you were connected to someone else to live. You couldn't live without that. We were all babies and infants. And in many ways, we still are like that. We're weak and dependent, constantly in danger of hurting ourselves. We have a one-year-old who is just learning to walk. And she's constantly in danger of hurting herself, of falling down the steps, of swallowing something that's not good for her. You know, this week especially, even as adults, we're weak and dependent. The flu, the COVID, strep throat, it's been everywhere in our church and community. We all know it, we've felt it. And there are times when you're so sick that you feel nothing but your frailty and your weakness. That's who we are. And so we ask, what is, what, who am I that you're mindful of me, God, that you care for me? And so how is God most chiefly mindful of us? It's through knowing our condition and sending us help. Because our deepest need, your deepest need and my deepest need, is to have my sin removed, to have my sin forgiven, so I can dwell with the holy God, because I need him. He cares for us. So he came for us. He cares for us, so he came for us. And that's what we are thinking about this time of the year as Christmas is almost here. You see, the solution is we need the perfect man that this psalm talks about that fully reveals God's glory. We need him. It's almost as we sing about in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, we need a second Adam. First Adam came, failed. And we failed just like him. We needed a second Adam. And he came. And we read about him in chapter 2 of Hebrews which I read earlier in the service. And here is when the the author of Hebrews applies Jesus to Psalm 8. So he reads it, and then he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. 
At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's pointing to the incarnation. Jesus came to bring us to God. He rescues through the weakness of, and frailty of humanity. And he gives glory and sacrifice for others. It's an amazing reality. Frank uh, Hewton, from, uh, his, uh, a poet from 1894, writes this. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man. You see, we have the perfect man in Christ who came for us and who makes all the wrong things right, all the dark things light, and brings us into the presence of God. I wanted to close with this quote by Alistair Begg. And he uses a a golfing metaphor, so if you're a golfer, this might help you. He says, you see, we're not going to be able to go into heaven on our own basis. We can't enter through that door on our own basis. It's an exclusive club. You can't go in yourself. Therefore, we're going to have to go in on the strength of somebody else. He says, like going to the masters. If you go in the dining room at Augusta, you have to have a green jacket. Well, I could never earn a green jacket. I don't know about you. How's your golf game? But if somebody gave me loan of his green jacket, then I could wear that and sit at the table. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that those who believe in him might be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus Christ made himself obedient unto death in order that those who trust in him might know the reality of life in all of its fullness and be brought in and to be clothed, and to have a seat at the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be with us, to heal us, to remind us of your love and power to save us from our sin. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through the cross, Be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.